The container management system Kubernetes was open-sourced by Google with the intention of creating a cloud service based on the project. Today, the Kubernetes ecosystem is looking similar to the Android ecosystem, with different vendors providing different ways to use Kubernetes, from Red Hat's OpenShift to Google's own container engine. Craig McLucky was a member of the team who originally devised Kubernetes, and he joins the show today to talk about the origins of Kubernetes and where the project is headed, exploring both the technical architecture and Google's business strategy around Kubernetes. Some quick announcements before we get started. The Software Engineering Daily community has started working on a project called SoftwareDaily.com, We are building an open-source news and information site about software. This project is led by Jeff Tribble, and you can check it out by going to softwaredaily.com. We would love to have any help from any web developers out there. And you can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com if you want to contribute as a host or if you want to check out the Slack channel or my Twitter account or my email You can also sign up for the Software Engineering Daily newsletter, Software Weekly, which features the content that the Software Engineering Daily team is checking out on a daily basis. Craig McLucky was a member of the team who devised Kubernetes. Craig, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by getting an origin story of Kubernetes. From your point of view, how did the earliest days of Kubernetes proceed? Um, Yeah, so I'd be happy to share some of my experiences with Kubernetes. Um, Just by way of background, um, you know, I've been working at Google in cloud for about, I guess, six years now. And, you know, previously I'd worked on a product which was called Google Compute Engine, which is a traditional virtual machine as a service offering. And I guess, uh, you know, Kubernetes really started coming about when uh, a, a colleague of mine, a guy called Joe Bade, and I were working together on this, this VM-based product. And our very earliest experiences were, were kind of interesting in that we had brought um, a traditional way of running enterprise workloads to this crazy uh, s- sort of new age machine, which is Google's technical infrastructure. And one of the most marked things that we experienced was that um, our customers were really struggling to get the most out of our basic infrastructure. We would create these very pristine, very clean virtual machines, and they would buy them. And then we'd look at the utilization statistics, and they were only using a tiny fraction of the actual compute that they were effectively paying for. And so it was pretty clear that there was this jarring disconnect between the way that Google uh, ran our workloads, which is really container-packaged, dynamically scheduled, microservices-oriented, versus the way that the world was running their workloads with uh, you know, virtual machine-based, relatively static configurations. And so it was pretty clear right from you know, our experience that there was this, this huge gap that existed, and, and we really wanted to start to fill the gap. And so Joe and I started thinking about you know, what would the world look like if we could extricate some of the very best attributes of platform as a service, but make them available to people in a relatively accessible way um, and you know, really use some of the power of Google's infrastructure to the advantage of the, of the enterprise customer. And around that same time, um, Docker started to emerge as a phenomenon. This was before it was very popular. Um, but we were looking at a whole bunch of different technologies and uh, and sort of docker you know piqued our curiosity as as being something that we thought created this really elegant developer experience and solved a hard problem that developers had had for a long time, which is really the packaging and distribution of uh, an application's components, creating a static, uh, hermetically sealed image that could be run. And so based on our experience with Google's infrastructure and experience building a VM-based offering, and with what we saw happening in the development community with Docker, uh, it was pretty obvious to us that we needed to find this kind of glue that existed between the two worlds. At that time, um, we had a third friend, a guy called Brennan Burns, who had sort of recently joined Cloud and was starting to experiment. And the whole thing started when um, you know, we were talking to Brendan and, and he wanted to do a, a demonstration for you know, one, of our, uh, you know, one of our internal all hands. And, and Brendan came up with this, this wonderful demo, which, which really felt like um, Borg, our internal system running on virtual machines. And, and at that moment, we all had this sort of epiphany that this was going to be the thing that we wanted to build. We wanted to create this, this Borg-like experience 
that stitched together a set of these you know, very pristine uh, and, and powerful virtual machines to create a logical computing fabric. And so we started uh, talking to a variety of folks inside Google. We talked to um, Urs Halsley, who runs all of technical infrastructure. And uh, we had this crazy idea, which is we wanted to build it in the open. We wanted to really create an open source project that brought this Borg-like experience to developers everywhere. And of course, Urs thought we were crazy. Um, you know, why would we want to release that as open source, you know, some of our most proprietary and most important technologies. Um, and it, it took us a while to really kind of, you know, work through the, the thinking behind this. But it was pretty obvious to us because, uh, you know, one is we saw open source as just being a, a far more powerful way of, of building technologies. And we were really impressed with so, the way. So just to be clear, the plan was to first open source Kubernetes with plans to eventually turn it into a democratized cloud service. That was the plan right from the get-go. So, you know, we, we really wanted to build it in the open. Um, and it was, it was kind of a first. No one had really built a cloud product in the open before. A lot of people had built cloud products around existing open source technologies, but we hadn't seen anyone actually start with open source and then turn it into a hosted product. And so that was a very different kind of pivot on, on how, to, how to build cloud products. Um, and it was really important because we recognized the vast majority of our customers were actually running on-premise still. And, and that is true today. You know, we, we're starting to see a trans, transition where, you know, in the next few years, the majority of workloads will be run cloud. But the reality is most of our customers' first experience with technology would be on-prem. And we knew that for us to be successful, we had to solve that problem first and then create a very effective hosted version of the technology that ran on our pristine infrastructure. What are the advantages of knowing that you're going to be a cloud service from day one? Because you know, there are plenty of products such as Hadoop or Kafka, these things that start as an open source project and then they get turned into a cloud service. But what are the advantages of knowing that day from day one this product, this open source project is going to be turned into a cloud service. It's, it's interesting. It's, the, I mean, the advantage in, in some regards, it, you know, I, I think is not so much around the technical choices you make, though that is certainly true. You know, like, you know, one of the things we recognize is that because we wanted this to become a cloud service and because we expected other people to use it as a foundation for cloud services, multi-tenancy and isolation would be really important. And so we were able to bake in right from the get-go things like um, our namespace support, which is a really important consideration when you start thinking about these technologies as the underpinnings of, of, of you know, cloud service and providing a hosting environment. But in many ways, um, we didn't want to get the cart ahead of the horse. We wanted to solve um, our customers' problems where those problems existed. And so we were quite fastidious about making sure that everything we did made sense on premise um, and you know and and we definitely you know worked hard to ensure that customers could understand the value proposition of the technology where they were running it um, and then that the translation later would happen sort of relatively effortlessly why was the on premise consideration so important if you're eventually going to turn it into a cloud service and you're going to be vending it why, like, why would it matter? Because if if you're not actually going to be having these on-premise users as customers, uh, the, the problem is that um, I actually experienced this pretty early on in in my career here at Google, which is I'd sit down with you know CTOs of of large financial service institutions or pharmaceutical companies and a bunch of other pe you know places, and a couple of things became very clear to me. The first is I had many people literally say to me, you'll pry my data centers out of my cold dead hands. Um, a lot of our um, early customers were hugely invested in at least having a story that let them you know, benefit from their existing you know, massive capital expenditure investments in, in, in on-prem data centers. And so very few of our customers were interested in a story that worked only on a single cloud. And the second thing that was clear is most of our customers didn't want to be in single cloud provider relationships. They wanted to have um, applications that they could run in different clouds, you know, for you know to to increase the robustness of of the availability, and, and just because they didn't want to be in a single uh, provider relationship. And so it was pretty clear that if we pursued a strategy that only worked in our cloud, 
we would exclude the majority of our customers because the majority of our customers wanted to have a technology story that spanned multiple clouds, including their on-prem uh, you know, data centers. And, and hybrid was such an important part of the narrative. And, and that's worked out really well for us. You know, I don't think the product would have been successful um, if we had simply focused on creating you know, the best rendition on Google. It's been successful because people are able to run it on premises and then when they get to the point where they run out of capacity or they want to burst to the cloud or they want to try something different, uh, it's very, very easy to take that application and then run it on our hosted version because it's literally the same code base. Well, in the conversation around portability, that comes up a lot in uh, the shows that I've done about Docker. Why do why what is the what is the element of portability that Kubernetes adds that you do not get with just Docker, for example? So Docker gives you the portability of an application component. So you know Docker creates this amazing you know first eight hours of experience with an application when you can take a base image, you can extend it, you can get it running on your laptop. And then you can get it running on the cloud. But the reality is, you know, 80% of the cost of an application is incurred not during the development phase. It's actually incurred during the, 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 the operations phase of the application. And so we weren't worried about just the first eight hours. We were worried about the next eight years when you're actually living with this application in production. How do you scale an application? How do you seamlessly upgrade an application so that, it, you know, without any form of interruption of service? How do you constantly monitor the health of an application, understand uh, you know, when something's gone wrong, and seamlessly restart it without involving an operator? Those were the set of problems that Kubernetes was designed to solve. And it's not enough to just have the application pieces that can go from environment to environment. You also need the fabric that the application runs in, the fabric that, that thinks about your application and reasons about its health, reasons about its, its, its scaling um, processes, reasons about you know, how to version it and update it. Uh, be as portable as the application itself. Mm. So around the time that Kubernetes was created, there were some other cluster management tools like Mesos, for example. What was the state of other distributed systems management tools like Mesos? Did you take inspiration from these tools? Um, I certainly looked at uh, tools like Mesos. You know, at, at the time... Um, there were a couple of technologies that were uh, ad- addressing some of these problems. And I did take a, a good, long, hard look at the, the relative technologies. Uh, and the two obvious ones were, I would say, Cloud Foundry and Mesos at the time. Uh, you know, Cloud Foundry was written by Derek Collison, who was an ex-Googler. Um, and it had solved some problems pretty well, but it had some uh, some issues that really, you know, we we... we we looked at what I looked at and, and, and decided it, it wasn't going to address the core issues that uh, that we wanted to solve, particularly around stateful application management. The reality is that it works well for you know certain classes, the 12-factor application, but the reality is very few applications fit entirely into that mold. There's always some kind of stateful component. And most of the customers I talked to wanted a solution that would be holistic, that could solve all these problems. And when we looked at Borg, uh, you know, the internal cluster management system, uh, everything runs in Borg. All of our stateful management um, sort of systems run inside Borg. So we knew it was possible, obviously, to, to create something that solved all those problems. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at, at Mesos, and that was actually written by folks who had interned at Google. So it was also inspired by uh, some of our internal systems. And the thing that um, kind of made me decide to do something net new was that, you know, first of all, Mesos uh, solved a specific problem, which is kind of a resource management and resource assignment problem. But when I looked at um, the use cases, I spoke to a large number of systems integrators that actually were running Mesos deployments, read the code base, you know, tried to really get a feel for it. Um, there, were, there were two things that really held me back, or uh, three things, I guess, that really held me back. One was uh, it was a, a relatively large C++ code base at a time when Go was uh, just representing a, a transformationally more powerful way to, to build these applications. Um, you know, I, I looked at it and I think about half the code could have been replaced by some of the, Go, the core Go libraries. The second thing is that it really tended to think about your application as a, you know, as like your resources as a relatively static block. It was large, monolithic, required a very high level of, of operations overhead. I wanted something that was much lighter weight that could work well on 
three virtual machines and work as well on three virtual machines as it could on a you know, 10,000 node cluster. So I really thought about this idea of a cluster as being something that you should be able to turn up with as little effort as you can turn up a virtual machine. And if you want to run multiple clusters, you should be able to do that. And, and Mesos was really more about just dealing with the basic resource management. But the final piece, and I think this is probably the most important, is that Mesos really didn't tackle a lot of the distributed systems problems um, that systems like Borg uh, sort of deal with. Mesos provided a way to map uh, a resource onto a physical machine, but it didn't think about how to tie applications together, how to create um, higher-level primitives like services that would let you, you know, p- you know, piece an application together. So it was really limited to resource management, and most of the kind of distributed systems uh, development happened at higher levels of the stack. So there were things like Aurora um, or Marathon or some of these other technologies. And you know, when I talked to a lot of our internal architects. Um, they were reasonably convinced that you know, creating an artificial layer that separated the resource manager from the kind of application layer primitives uh, would introduce some difficult sort of scheduling problems later that would make it more complex. And so uh, we really wanted a, a lightweight, simple, portable system that provided an elegant set of distributed system primitives um, and that would be as easy to turn up as a virtual machine. And, and that led me away from Mesos and, and to actually doing something that new. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the scheduler components because in most of the conversations I have about Mesos or Kubernetes or other container management tools, distributed systems tools, the conversation turns to the scheduler. And on these different platforms, there are these different types of workloads that I need to schedule. So perhaps I have a user who is making a request to Gmail and I need to spin up a container to serve that person a bunch of emails. This would be an unbounded job because the user you know, spins up a container and from the point of view of the platform, you have no idea how long that job is going to run, how long that user is going to continue to make requests to that container. And then there's also these bounded jobs, like if a data scientist makes a a request for a MapReduce job over 30 terabytes of data, um, you know, that might take a while, but it's going to be a bounded job. It's going to have a fixed time, uh, amount of time that needs to be spent on it. So when you were architecting Kubernetes, what were the big questions around scheduling that you were asking? You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people have focused relentlessly on the problems associated with with scheduling and 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 building schedulers at scale. And to be honest, when we were looking at Kubernetes, uh, and and certainly for the first year, we instituted a radically simple scheduling algorithm. Like we were not particularly worried about uh, trying to get uh, very fancy with scheduling because. Um, you know, when I looked at you know what customers were actually using out there uh, in, the, in the ecosystem, very few customers, and I, I use things like Open OpenStack as a as a kind of good starting point. For the first year of the project, the reality is most customers were not trying to build massive clusters. You know, there, there were some set of customers. There were people like you know the the Twitters or the Netflixes or or some of the really you know, forward-leaning folks that were really concerned about stitching together 10,000 machines to create a highly optimized uh, compute fabric that, you know, could get, you know, 50% or, or better, you know, aggregate CPU utilization. But they were by far the minority of uh, of customers. And they were not representative of our sort of our target group, which is really the enterprise customer. Most of the enterprise customers were stitching together a small number of computers. They were looking to solve some basic problems around application lifecycle and productivity, et cetera. And so for the first year of the project, I literally was not that concerned about um, you know, creating an optimal scheduling uh, model. I was much more concerned about creating something that was accessible, simple, would scale to roughly 100 nodes, and would solve the problems that these folks had had for a long time, which is, you know, how do I actually drive down the cost of operations for a modern application? Like, how do I get to something that, uh, you know, creates radical operational efficiencies for me? Because for those customers, the overarching driving cost wasn't so much the cost of the underlying compute. It was actually the cost of the operators and the developers. But at the same time, we recognized that, you know, over the coming years, 
um, efficiencies would become a, a major you know component. And I was very confident that we could build you know like efficient schedulers. Like you know, heavens knows a large number of people that have built. Uh, you know, some of the world's best schedulers already work at Google, and they are working on the Kubernetes project. So, I knew that that was a problem we could solve, um, and so we just focused on making sure that the system was highly modular and was pluggable, and that uh, you know we could over time introduce and refine and enhance the scheduler so that you know for given job types and, and other pieces we could you know make much more refined uh, scheduling decisions. But it just wasn't that important for the first year because that's not where our customers were. Like, you know, the sweet spot customers, the enterprise customer. Hmm. What about the uh, the coordination story? Because in a lot of early Hadoop systems, uh, you know, you have a you have a Paxos based uh, coordin- coordinator uh, like Zookeeper, mm-hmm. um, and you know later on you have Raft and these these distributed systems tools like Zookeeper. They're great, but they require this coordination, which can be computationally expensive. How much coordination is required in a Kubernetes cluster? It's a great question. And this is, I think, one of the most essential uh, kind of design decisions that we we took. And then there were two kind of parts of the inspiration here. We took inspiration from uh, you know what we'd learned in Borg and its successor, Omega, um, in terms of how to actually structure um, the, the, the sort of control systems, there are, there are certain functions that have to be centralized, and there are certain functions that you can't afford to decentralize. And you know, so so we definitely took inspiration from the way that Omega was creating decentralized control systems. And the second thing is, you know, Brendan Burns, who was one of the kind of key initial architects, was a, a robotics dude. You know, he 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 is a lot of his sort of um, education was in robotics. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, creating decentralized uh, control systems. So there are a certain set of tasks that have to be centralized, and we looked at introducing a common, uh, you know, control fabric. We, we basically used etcd to actually manage distributed state across the system. But wherever possible, we focused relentlessly on creating decentralized control systems. So, for instance, scaling operations on a set of uh, pods, which is the kind of unit of deployment in Kubernetes, was handled by a replication controller. And the replication controller is responsible for controlling the replication of one set of pods, just one set of pods. It's not trying to look at and make replication uh, decisions across the entirety of the cluster. So we'd stand up discrete replication controllers, and they would be uh, control subsystems that would then look at the health of an individual subsystem within the cluster and make informed decisions about the management of that subsystem. And so wherever possible, we focused on decentralizing most of the control decisions and then creating a common control fabric for the things that couldn't be decentralized. So when a replication controller you know, needed to allocate another pod, it would talk to a central scheduler that would then you know look across the pool of resources and make the make the allocation. It would then link the pod into um, you know would actually assign a label to it that would then link it into the control domain of that replication controller. But we were relentlessly focused on avoiding uh, wherever possible uh, centralized uh, control models, and and that that has stood us in, in tremendously good stead. And it's the only practical way to you know build systems that are both scalable. But also have you know high levels of operations efficiency and uh, you know very fast and low latency uh, control decisions. Does the user need to think about what aspects are centralized and what aspects might be uh, have looser consistency, or is this is this mostly not in the purview of the user? The user experiences this through the domain model, so the user doesn't need to think about this. This, you know, the, the way that you would, you know, schedule a set of things is you create a replication controller, and that replication controller is then responsible for the lifecycle of a set of things under management. So, it does create, uh, you know, an one sort of an onus on the user to understand how the control system works, and in insofar as the user needs to understand what a replication controller is and what it does. Um, but the user beyond that doesn't have to actually worry about, you know, kind of trying to create an optimal architecture. You know, the, the system itself, they tend to, f- you know, fall into the trough of success in terms of, you know, building distributed systems. It was always, you know, what we were hoping to do is to, to make 
make it easy to build highly scalable, highly manageable distributed systems by providing a rather opinionated way of thinking about things like control metaphors and the way that you tie things together with services and some of these pieces based on our experiences. I want to talk more about the intersection of Kubernetes and Google's cloud. Um, we've done a lot of shows on the internals of Kubernetes, and uh, you know, I'm very curious about the process of productizing Kubernetes. So Google has this cloud service called the Google Container Engine. Can you talk about, like, what Google Container Engine is and to what degree it is consuming Kubernetes? Google Container Engine is literally a hosted version of Kubernetes. So it is uh, the set of glue that's necessary to effortlessly turn up and manage a Kubernetes cluster. Um, so there is some proprietary technology that's involved in provisioning and you know turning up and, and sort of managing the shape of a cluster. But under the covers, it's 100% open source Kubernetes code. So the premise of this whole project has been that Google can run, or well, Google, you know, posits that we, we you know, they hope they can run Kubernetes the best. Um, can you give me an example of like what? types of i mean obviously you can't talk in super detail about the proprietary stuff but what are the areas of expertise that uh, google is focusing on to try to make this uh, a competitively advantageous situation yeah you know it's it's interesting and this really kind of derives from my experience with compute engine and you know I, you know what went well with compute engine and what went badly um, google's infrastructure is amazing like it really is it has you know some of the the world's best, you know, physical infrastructure. Our, our network fabric is remarkable, um, and you know, if you, you know, I'd invite um, you know prospective customers to just try it, you know, profile it, you know, compare it to other uh, you know platforms out there. It has massive price performance advantages. Uh, you know, the network um, latencies are spectacular. It uses our um, our you know Google uh, owned you know global uh, network. Um, to connect to customers, there's just a lot of advantages in terms of you know the, the investments that Google's made in building and running um, our technical infrastructure scale, and it, it's always been you know a, a really good product. Um, but you know when we brought Compute Engine to market, um, you know our customer it wasn't it wasn't enough, right? Like you know for a lot of customers they were looking for more than just you know really you know wonderful uh, physical infrastructure. They were looking for you know a story that worked on premises and in cloud. They were looking for you know a better set of ways to, to connect these things together. And so the premise behind Kubernetes is relatively simple. You know the, the first part of it is, look, it runs on Google's physical infrastructure, which is was fine, high quality physical infrastructure. It just provides better bang for the buck, uh, you know, better aggregate performance. It's more consistent. Uh, we invite our customers to try it. And so so that's the that was a starting premise. It's just try infrastructure, you'll like it. Um, if you run Kubernetes on-prem, your application will work effortlessly on our infrastructure, and we think you will find that it's it offers the best possible price performance and overall quality of service of, of any physical infrastructure out there available to you. The second part of it is that, you know, as I looked at the way that we ran our infrastructure, so for instance, with um, Google Compute Engine, you know, we tend to you know, have these these data centers that are relatively progressive they're very modern and so as part of you know compute engine for instance we always maintain like uh, and and we aggressively update the underlying you know kernel of 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 whatever we're running and it's it's a very important part to maintain our security posture and so you know we had to create live migration technologies so that we could move um, VM workloads around our data centers to meet our own internal scheduling decisions so if you're running on a Google compute engine virtual machine you can be pretty confident that you're running on a you know really secure base kernel, and uh, we're I think you know one of the very very few cloud providers that actually uses this sort of live migration technology to keep everything up to date. And so uh, it was very hard for us to kind of 
build that in. You know, it, it like virtual machine workloads don't work all that naturally well with with the way that we tend to schedule and build and, and run our, our systems. And so, if we could get the world to move beyond the VM to actually get far closer to the way we run our workloads, um, our expectation is that over the next few years we'll be able to provide even stronger uh, cost advantages, you know, radically better price performance over the workloads they see today as we get closer and closer to the metal. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about the Kubernetes ecosystem. This is something I didn't really understand early on when I started doing shows about Kubernetes, but it's, you know, initially I was like, okay, so this is a container platform and, you know, it's just Kubernetes. I manage all my containers through it, but it's actually built to be quite modular, and there are projects that are already built on Kubernetes or that utilize Kubernetes as a component. There's Red Hat's OpenShift, and there are also projects like Rancher that can use Kubernetes, or you can swap it out for Mesos or another container mm-hmm. management tool. And this this can be maybe hard to uh, you know wrap your mind around. Like if you think about like a project like Ruby on Rails, there aren't multiple projects that people build people use to build and maintain ruby on rails projects it's mostly like you use ruby on rails maybe you deploy ruby on rails to amazon or you deploy it to google or you deploy it wherever heroku but it's not like you use ruby on rails as a plugin for some other component so c- could you maybe like contrast like the that ethos of you know ruby on rails with with kubernetes like how is how is it a component to be used as part of bigger projects? You know, this is a really important consideration as we entered into the into the system. When you think about it, um, we were looking to help the world transition from one style of infrastructure management to a new style of infrastructure management. You know, going from virtual machines to containers, going from statically scheduled to dynamically scheduled. Going from you know maintaining an sort of you know implicit sense of who's talking to what to having explicit services you know and and you know formal microservice definition. So we were, we were looking at doing something that was pretty bold, which is really helping the world go from this let's call it a type one you know way of thinking about building applications to this type two model. And you know Google's not the only people that that run type two clouds, right? So. You know, Twitter has co-evolved this with, you know, with the Mesos technologies. Netflix has co-evolved this. Facebook has co-evolved this with Tupperware. Like, you know, each of these companies was independently, you know, building out these these types of systems. And you know, when we looked at the scope of what it takes to create a holistic Type Two operating environment, it was breathtaking. Right? There's obviously the underlying resource management pieces. There's the integration into the storage and networking ecosystems. There's the uh, physical, you know, you know, application fabric. There's continuous integration systems that sit above it. There's, you know, secret management technologies. There's this ocean of things you have to do to do that. And we knew this. I mean, we'd built one ourselves. And, uh, you know, as had Facebook, as had a number of people. But the reality is that when you think about, like, what really accelerates an ecosystem, you can, you know, have a lot of commercial success if you create a relatively closed, vertically integrated ecosystem. But in our experience, open ecosystems are, you know, far more powerful. Uh, and we didn't want to... Um, you know, try to create a story where everything you're running has to be Google provided. There's some things will do well, but we recognize that you know if you look at you know some of the things that are happening, look at like what Linkerd is doing with uh, you know proxy technologies. Like it's it's pretty cool stuff. Um, and our ambition was to move the world from type one to type two. Our ambition wasn't to create a closed system to really own the the type two environment. You know, like at the end of the day, we're a cloud provider. We benefit when people run our infrastructure and that means you know creating a whole ecosystem of technology that run our infrastructure and so it was you know it was a safe bet for us to really focus on an open ecosystem and i think it's played out incredibly well um you know, i well, don't i don't think we, go ahead it, it strikes me as very similar to the android ecosystem where you have different handset manufacturers that are trying to make the best Android phone and you know and then Google can look at those lessons and try to do the best they can also with something like Nexus. That's exactly right. And um 
you know, the, the intent here was, was to really foster an ecosystem and to empower an ecosystem and to enable an ecosystem. I truly believe that the transition from the type one to type two cloud uh, is bigger than any one company. And okay, I, sorry, I, can you define that type one to type two cloud? So let's say a type one cloud is a world where you're running in virtual machines. Your scaling event happens, you know, on the order of you know minutes or on, you know compute engines probably tens of seconds. Uh, you're running in a in a relatively statically sized uh, container. Uh, you're responsible for the maintenance of your application. You have to upgrade it and you know and, and deal with it yourself. It's relatively operation intensive, and uh, most of the systems are monolithic. You know, there's you don't you don't get to kind of think about it as a sort of decomposed world. The type two cloud is container packaged, dynamically scheduled, microservices oriented. It's what we call cloud native. It's a cloud native cloud. Right. Okay. What about the? I mean, it, do you consider the serverless? Uh, world is that going to be the type three world? It's an interesting question. I, I I don't think that it's. I think I think serverless is a uh, is a is an application pattern rather than a management pattern. You can absolutely build, uh, and people have built serverless uh, technology on, on a technology like Kubernetes. Right. It's it's really about the, the the shape of your application rather than the philosophy of your physical infrastructure management. So I don't I don't think serverless is necessarily orthogonal. I think it's just a type of application or workload that fits very well into a dynamically scheduled world. Like it's it's characterized by dynamically scheduled, you know, decoupled, etc. So I think it's just a form of this type two application pattern that that works really well for certain classes of workload. So the dynamic scheduling, it, I would think of that as basically I don't want to think about how my containers are scheduled uh i just have it i just have my architecture set up to to take care of that for me yeah uh, okay i have a logical compute like instead of thinking about you know I, t- I tend to think of this in the old days you'd have physical compute you'd have this physical compute fabric where i deploy an application onto a physical machine and the next the next stage was to create virtual compute where i create a virtualized representation of a physical machine i deploy my application into that the third evolution of that is logical computing, where rather than having to worry about the physical shape of something, I request you know computational resources, and it could be at the end of an event. In the case of you know like a lot of these serverless computing paradigms, uh, or it could be, you know, I always want to have you know precisely one of these things running, or it could be it, it scales up and down based on the the shape of the workload, right? Um, but it's it's deployed into a logical compute environment. I just throw a bunch of resources you know into this logical compute environment. I'm, you know, I, I create a, a, a technology that, that stitches it together and, and creates a, an application environment, and then I can just drop applications into it. Mm. And you know, one logical extent of this is you get to usage of more platform as a service type of things, like you know, Dataflow and TensorFlow uh, are these Google Google's you know pro- data processing and analytics solutions which you can use as a service. Um, you know, is is that the natural extent uh, extension of all of our application development? You know, am, am I am I going to be able to stop thinking of you know how much uh, what what size CPUs I need to provision for my Ruby on Rails application? I just say I've got a Ruby on Rails application. Um, you know, hey hey, platform as a service, go figure it out. Yeah, I think it's it's really a transition away from. You know what? What I consider operator-driven uh, applications to intent-driven applications, and I think it's a it's a profound thing, right? You know, the analogy I, I tend to use is, um, you know, in the old days I used to have like one of these little model airplanes, and I guess it, it scarred my childhood because one day I was flying it over a sports field, and the next minute it was ten thousand pieces of balsa wood lying across the sports field, right? Because they were really hard to fly, and it was an operator-driven thing. You know, you'd, you'd use a control stick to do that. And today you have drones, and you know you, you you provide a statement of intent. Hey, go there, go up, go down, do whatever. And the there's some things that computers just do a lot better than people. And one of those things is is controlling a little you know model aircraft or whatever it is. And this transition is as profound as the transition from a balsa wood airplane to a modern drone by introducing intelligent control systems and introducing these 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 patterns. The operator specifies their intent. 
I want this thing to return responses within, you know, 30 milliseconds, you know, all the time. And the intelligent subsystems will observe what your latency is and they'll make moment to moment decisions about how many of, you know, how many front end instances you need. Um, they will observe every front end instance and they will decide whether or not uh, it's healthy based on, you know, the, the, the pattern of the, the call patterns that it's generating. And they will restart the unhealthy ones and let you know that it, you know, you've, you've probably introduced a bug of some kind. Mm. Um, it's profoundly different, and it's it's very powerful. We did a show about the Google SRE role, which is kind of Google's flavor of the role of the operator. Or, it, I mean, I'm sure Google has multiple types of operators. But to what degree is the SRE role enabled by a tool like Kubernetes? That's a great question, and it's actually it's a it's a very it's really kind of cutting to the heart of, of, of a lot of what this 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 enables. When I think about one of the most profound changes that this the technology like Kubernetes is going to introduce, and one of the, the profound changes introduced to Google is is really enabling the specialization of operations. Right, so we have this world we call DevOps today, which creates a situation where. A developer, you know, uses one set of coding tools to solve a business problem, and they use a different set of coding tools to solve the problem of mapping that code into a physical environment and running it. Right, and you're basically pushing a lot of the operations onus onto the developer. Um, and the reality is, like the way that a lot of people tend to think about DevOps is, is relatively inefficient. You know, I speak to a lot of CTOs, and they they use traditional. Um, configuration management you know software and they say things like you know my ability to keep up is no longer based on the developer's ability to actually you know code the business logic it's actually based on the ability to you know program the physical infrastructure that that's getting deployed to and so what we're likely to see and what happened at Google is that by introducing these technologies that create a logical compute environment we were able to specialize operations. So infrastructure operations, the guys who rack and stack infrastructure and actually deal with the health of the physical infrastructure became a specialized thing. And they became very good at doing it. Cluster operations, the people that would stitch together physical infrastructure and create this logical compute environment became another operations function. And then within that, you know, we had different you know, folks that were operating common services and they were specialized folks that were just delivering common services to all of our distributed systems developers. And then on top of that, you had the developers themselves that were building applications. And initially, they would run those applications and, you know, and operate themselves. And then they would hand them off to an operations team. And so by introducing this technology that created this logical compute environment where you could take a developer's intent and, and run it, uh, we were able to radically specialize our operations functions and you know, create a far, far higher level of efficiency uh, than we'd experienced previously. So let's talk in more specifics. How does Kubernetes change the conversation around monitoring and security and other elements of the operations that are, you know, sometimes secondary considerations? Yeah, it's it's and it's 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 pretty profound insofar as you know today when you're a developer you'll build an application. And then you'll have to figure out like what's your, you know, what is your logging story for that application. So I might use, hey, I'm a Java application, I use log4j, and then I, you know, egress it to this, and then I have a bunch of other tools. And I, you know, I pick up the set of tools that I want for my specific application, and I cobble together a whole application sort of management portfolio that includes monitoring, logging, um, backup, archival, etc. These these all become things that I have to think about, and then I integrate them into my application environment, and I have to configure them along with my application itself. Right. The difference is in a logical compute environment, you create common services that deliver those capabilities, and those services are available to all applications that are deployed into that cluster environment. So, for instance, you might have a service that provides log management. And it just shows up as a logging service inside Kubernetes that's directly discoverable. And you can introduce an agent into your you know, application either as a, as, a little, as a little container in your pod that can then just you know, integrate with that. But it talks to this common logging service. And so every application that's deployed into the cluster has access to one or more common logging services that um, are provided to them by a specialist operations team. They don't need to worry about configuring it and running it and deploying it into their environment. It just becomes a natural part of the of their compute um, ecosystem, and 
there's a specialized team that can actually provide that as a service to all of the application developers that are using that cluster. Um, and so that, that sort of natural separation where you know, logging just becomes an endpoint you talk to in the cluster environment. You don't know who's actually providing the logging service. You don't know what's behind it, but it's, it's always there. Mm. Um, and uh, that, that, that really changes the games for developers. So what are the big challenges that are being worked on in the Kubernetes uh, open source project right now? So obviously, with um, you know, with one dot three, there's there's a there's you know there's there's a there's a few things that have changed. The first is, you know, a relentless focus on increasing the set of workloads that we supported. So when we introduced Kubernetes, we were very focused on just providing a really elegant way to support stateless, you know, web serving type workloads, and we did that pretty well. Um, but obviously, you know, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, most of our customers have some kind of stateful management, you know, sort of requirements. And for Kubernetes to be a complete whole cloth management story, we need state management. And so, you know, in 1.3, we introduced um, the PetSet features, which is a state management um, solution, and that uh, that's an important consideration for the for the for the community. Um, and you know, over time, we'll expect to extend and enrich the set of workloads that you know we we can support and, and make sure that we have really high quality pieces there. Um, a second piece um, of work that we've been very focused on as a community has been around cluster federation. So a lot of customers want to deploy services into multiple availability zones, and they want to be able to address services independently of where they're running. And so we've put a lot of uh, time and thought into um, stateful application management, and um, that's been an important uh, you know, consideration for the team. Beyond that, we're also you know focused on just continuing to drive and improve um, the overall fit and finishing quality of the product, making it easier to install um, on a variety of cloud environments, uh, making sure that the community can scale. Like It's a very big and very healthy and very vibrant community. We're putting a lot of time and thought into how to continue to enrich the community and scale it. Um, we're thinking a lot about you know, increased scale and automation, like how do we improve the, you know, our ability to, to sort of automatically um, scale um, our clusters and, and, uh, and automate the management of those clusters. So that just gives you a taste of some of the things that uh, we're thinking about. But it, it's really about you know, improving the story for um, you know, the set of different workloads, increasing the number of workloads, making it easy to run clusters that are running in potentially sort of fragmented environments, and then just you know, a, a com- consistent focus on the, the quality of the, the product, the ability to service the community, um, and just the overall experience of the product. You are a product manager on Kubernetes, and uh, we haven't done many shows on product management. I think of Kubernetes as a very unique project to be doing product management on. Can you tell me some about what your responsibilities are and how you fulfill them? Sure. So um, I'm I'm sort of a little bit uh, unusual in, in terms of product management in that I tend to do the sort of I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of a natural incubator. So I build Compute Engine and uh, Kubernetes and you know technology called deployment management and a few other things. So I tend to focus a lot on on what's next and the community. Um, my my job has uh, you know I think unlike a lot of other you know sort of traditional product management jobs is is very very focused on the community itself. So I spend a lot of my time. You know, working to make sure that uh, you know, Kubernetes is a great technology for the broader community and that the community owns the technology. So I started this project called the Cloud Native Computing Foundation along with you know, friends from Intel, Red Hat, IBM, Cisco, VMware, etc. And so I'm, I'm sort of very outward focused on that. Um, and then I tend to spend a lot of time thinking about you know, what's next. You know, how, do we, how do we go beyond Kubernetes? How do we really enrich our a story around you know services you know what are the next set of things that that are coming so I, t- I manage a, a team of product managers and my role tends to be sort of relatively evenly split between working to really engage the broader community of both customers and uh, vendors who are, are betting on on this technology and then you know looking at you know helping the team to really evolve and uh, and create you know what's next for for the community mm. There were a few questions that you posed at last year's OSCON where you announced Kubernetes. Uh, and these questions were, uh, what is 
the standard definition format for a distributed system? What is the profile of a basic computing node? I think you also asked, what are the common distributed systems services that developers bet on? And these are canonical questions. They're evolving questions. And I'm I'm wondering how your answers to those questions have evolved in the last year. That's a that's a great question. Yeah, I'd forgotten I'd raised that to the community. Um, I would say that um, you know I I don't have the answers to those specific questions yet. Um, I think that what we have done in the last year is is to create the group that is actually going to ultimately answer those questions. So. You know, the last year for me has been spent on pulling together the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and you know, working with a very engaged uh, community of vendors to create the right sort of open, community-centric, uh, kind of end-user-driven forum to really start addressing and, 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 and answering those specific questions. So I don't think we're at a point where they're specifically answered, but I can say that I know who will ultimately answer those questions today, and that that will you know be driven out by the technical oversight committee of of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, um, with a lot of input from the growing end user community that's that's being uh, germinated there. Okay, well that seems like a great place to stop, Craig. Thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I'm uh, very excited about Kubernetes, and I'm pleased to continue reporting on it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.